Hello, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers Festival. I hope you enjoy this conversation from our podcast series. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and I pay my respects and I give my dua to the elders past, present and emerging. Assalamu alaikum. My name is Dr. Michael Muhammad Ahmed. I am the author of three novels, The Tribe, The Lebs, and The Other Half of You. And I am also the very, very proud director of Sweatshop Western Sydney Literacy Movement, um, which I run alongside uh, my closest and dearest collaborator who actually just screamed out, the wonderful writer and editor of Tongan Descent, Winnie Dunn. I... I founded Sweatshop in 2012 as a self-determined organization that would be devoted to empowering First Nations people and people of color through reading, writing, and critical thinking. The vision for Sweatshop was inspired by the teachings of African-American feminist, activist, and writer, Bell Hooks, who argues that all steps towards freedom and justice in any culture are always dependent on mass-based literacy movements because degrees of literacy determine how we see what we see. Bell Hooks sadly passed away last year, but her philosophies have continued to live on in our hearts, our minds, and our writing. And since our community in Western Sydney first adopted her teachings, we have produced a groundbreaking collection of publications, podcasts, videos, performances, and events that give voice to some of Australia's most amazing but underrepresented voices. Today, you will have the opportunity to hear six of these voices, all of whom Sweatshop has had the great honor of working with at varying stages in their impressive careers. Uh, So without further ado, I am very excited to introduce you to the first performer we have featured today. Jazz Money is a Wawadjuri poet and artist currently based on Gadigal land. Her practice is centered around the written word while producing works that encompass installation, digital, film, and print. Jazz's writing has been widely performed and published nationally and internationally. Her David Uniapin award-winning debut collection, How to Make a Basket, was published in 2021. In addition to this stunning poetry collection, which I highly recommend you all purchase today, Jazz is one of the contributors of our new anthology, Blacklight, 10 Years of First Nations Storytelling, which was launched here yesterday and which is available now at the Festival Bookshop. Sorry if I sound a little bit like a shifty Arab merchant trying to hock our (laughs) products to you, but they are for a very worthy cause. Um, So please uh, give a very warm welcome to Jazz Money. Hi, Mob. Um, I just want to echo my deepest gratitude for being here on Gadigal land. It is an honour to live and work here, um, particularly far from my own river in southern Wiradjuri country, the Murrumbidgee. When I was trying to think of what I would perform today, I'm going to perform the piece that is in Blacklight, uh, the collection launched yesterday. But I'm also going to read a poem that I've never performed before. Uh, It's called I Don't Sleep Anymore. And the reason I was wanting to perform it is because when Sweatshop helped me launch this book in Parramatta, 
uh, back in December. My darling friend, Sarah Saleh, who is very well connected to this community, said uh, she read this poem and it was such a delight to hear it. And I thought I would sort of honour that moment um, between Sweatshop and my own sort of career by reading it, by reading it for the first time. <laughs> uh, for a wee bit of context, it's a, it's a mirror poem, so it kind of, it is it's a repeating motif and you can kind of read it backwards and forwards, so it doesn't have to be linear in the way I'm going to read it, but that's, well, I don't know how else to perform. <laughs> I don't sleep anymore. I don't sleep anymore, instead I feast with my arms deep to the elbows in the primordial stickiness of hope. From it, I pull many fevered sicknesses and a constant series of doors. But it's not like the metaphor where a window opens. It's more like a dimensionless maze and some hydra beast. I don't sleep anymore. Instead, I plant seeds throughout the moon garden and wait for my children to rise up from the twin wombs in our bed, the place where I whisper and chant for peace. I don't sleep anymore. Instead, I dream of places where I can step upon the ground and not hear the cries of kin rising from the blood-soaked earth, shrinking beneath a mean sky. No, I don't sleep anymore. I just weep and weep until I turn back to a river. No, I don't sleep anymore. Now I wander through the smoke plume inhaling the dust of that long-distant explosion. Version 2. I don't sleep anymore. Instead, I dance with my eyelids deep to the moon in the sun of a primordial light. From it, I pull many fevered children and a constant many-coloured whale. It's like the metaphor where a path forks, but more like an ailing animal forgetting pain. I don't sleep anymore. Instead, I shake dust throughout the dream garden and cry for my children against time. From the seeds in our hearts, the place where I spin and spin and weep. I don't sleep anymore. Instead, I visit places where I can step with the ancestors and find peace in my kin rising from the earth, hoping beneath an endless song. No, I don't sleep anymore. I just laugh and laugh until I turn back to a child. No, I don't sleep anymore. Now I wait for you upon the shore, inhaling the ocean shells of that long, distant ocean. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm just going to read one more poem. Uh, I want to say a huge thank you to Sweatshop. Um, and also, so this poem is called How to Make a Basket. It's um, also the title of my collection, which came out last year. But I wrote this piece long before there was any, like, idea that I would have a book. And so it was first read by Hannah Donnelly for Blacklight. And um, this poem wouldn't be what it is without her editing and sharp eye. And so I want to give a huge... Love, shout out to my sister, um, Hannah, for her care in like shepherding this anthology into existence. Um, so, how to make a basket. 
Oh, one more note. Uh, this is a bushfire poem, so if that is going to be upsetting, I'm really sorry. I wrote it um, when I was living in the Blue Mountains and I was so fucking angry. Um, but I found it very healing, so I hope this is healing for you too. And it's about a Prime Minister who's no longer a Prime Minister. <laughs> um, <laughs> How to make a basket. Time weaves a horizon of many strands. The end of the world was marked with beautiful light. We should have known. As megafires surrounded the city and our leaders lounged offshore on beach with shandy in Hawaiian print, we marveled, the orange air more brilliant and terrifying than an Instagram filter. Our skin glowed and glowed as the horizon and we were together to watch it burn. Retying grass knots again, again, again. The age of the idealised self didn't touch our fingertips. The sun hung heavy, angry, near, in a thick sky. We choked. Our photographs were perfect. We looked beautiful at the end of the world. And the content was fire. The content was lit. How predictable that the end of the world would be captured in a selfie. The sun gets hotter as it ages. We're dreaming, we're dreaming of a cold, young sun. When smoke hangs low over the city basin, it is a new town, another town. One wearing death as a halo or else revealing itself as a place where wicked things can occur. This country is not bad but bad happens here. Here, the smoke curl around the monuments, trying to reclaim sovereign stone. We burn leaves to cleanse a place, but this, I wouldn't call this smoke a healing medicine. Willy wagtails are not nocturnal, but they will sing to the moon. I will call her Jiri Jiri. Follow to the end of the street and remember small fires in the gorge. Each one that used to be safe. Each one that used to be a family. I climb underneath the ash. My country is beyond the horizon. All plains, all rivers. The edges can be crossed with care. You might say the language is harsh, but it is an ancient beauty, a life that rolls and sings, and we're singing, we're singing. I wake up to a woman wading through tall birds, heart-shaped leaves with perfect breasts that hang long and heavy, scars along her chest. Her basket is safety. Everything worth holding in two hands has a perfect basket to respond. How to make a basket. First, you must begin with the grasses. First, you must tend the blades, the small, sweet shoots. First, you must make healthy the soil. Care for this place, 
tend with fire, carry the seeds. First, you must make the land right. First, you must love this mother. What you care for will care for you. When you are ready, you will understand how to make a basket. Thank you so much. Give it up. Thank you, Jazz. Our next performer for this afternoon is Guido Mello. He is an Afro-Brazilian Latinx multilingual author and poet based in Nam, Melbourne, currently undertaking a Bachelor of Arts in Writing and Digital Media at Victoria University. His words can be found in Mianjin, Overland, Kill Your Darlings, Peril, Culinary, Mantisa Poetry, Ascension Magazine, SBS Voices, SBS Portuguese, Cordite Poetry Review, Right Now, Human Rights Magazine, and believe it or not, many, many more. Guido is also a contributor to Growing Up African in Australia, and today he will be reading to you from a story Sweatshop published last year in the anthology called Racism, Stories on Fear, Hate and Bigotry. Please welcome Guido Miller. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a privilege to be here among Sweatshop, and I'm grateful. Casa Sendas. My father, a proud black sergeant for the Brazilian Air Force with short black hair and thick myopia glasses, arrived at home just after sundown. He was dressed in his huge ragged jeans and looked very sweaty, with droplets on his forehead. I remember the bags under his eyes. I could never be sure if he was tired from his long shifts at the airbase or he was just getting old. In 1989, Brazil, we need to buy everything on the day my father's salaries came in because of the hyperinflation. Hyperinflation was a rampant type of inflation that was a consequence of bad management of the economy caused by the then defunct military dictatorship. If we did not push it right there and then, by the next day, the prices would hike and would not be able to afford the monthly groceries that our large family required. I didn't understand the economy, but my father explained it to me that unscrupulous business owners raised the past prices on salary day to increase their profits. One day after school, I had to pick up my mother's medicine near the supermarket. I then decided to venture into Casa Sanders alone. As I entered, I could smell the bread freshly baked. The warm dough and the noise of this cheese slicing machine reminded me of breakfast, which was my favorite meal of the day. I look up and down and notice the lights were bright blue-ish neon, just like a siren. I browse up and down every aisle deliberately and slowly. 
The midsection was cold and refreshing and a pleasant contrast to Rio de Janeiro's 35 degrees, melting everything outside day. The toy section was the most colorful, with items stacked from top to bottom. The biggest section was filled with Playmobil dolls. Some of my white friends had them. When I got invited to their homes, which did not happen often, I played with Playmobil for hours. Otherwise, it was back to the soccer field where my skills did not require price tag. If I were rich, I would buy the fireman and the Formula One sets. Looking at the boxes, I could imagine holding the toys in my hands as if I was playing with them in my own house. I could be in that place for ages without noticing, that was for sure. Mom and dad always sped me up out of that because we can afford no luxuries. As I was squatting on my knees, reading every description of the boxes, I felt my ears start to burn. From the corner of my eyes, I noticed a Sigurança. He was a black man, but light-skinned, much lighter than me. He looked like in his mid-30s, wearing a checkered red and white shirt and old rag jeans just like my father's. I could feel my throat drying. I could hear my heart pumping rapidly, just like a samba. He must be thinking I was about to shoplift. I was shop He must have been thinking I was shoplifting. I was faced with a dilemma. If I made fast movements to leave, he would assume I was stealing. If I stay quiet, he would continue to look at me and assume I was about to steal. Either way, he would frisk me. This was stamped from the beginning, and whatever I did, I would lose. I glanced side-eye to the Segurança. He placed his hands on my waist where he probably kept his gun holster. I was trying to look straight into his eyes. He would not hesitate to fire at me right there and then. We both knew if he did this, he could get away with it. There is a thing about power. When you truly possess it, you don't need to act for others to fear you. The Segurança's eyes were blood with fire. I froze like a defenseless animal. He came close and pointed to my waist. With his palms facing up, gesturing hands, like lifting an invisible weight, he told me to raise up my T-shirt. Show me that. Peter didn't say anything today. I wanted to give you a good bash. My heart was trying to escape my chest. I felt, I felt the eyes of the other shoppers on me. Get out of my face and don't ever come back. 
as I walk outside of this door, I knew what most adults were thinking about me. That I was low, a low life in the green teeth, up to no good. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Our, our third performer for today. Uh, sorry, you should totally check out Guido's work. Find it online. You can find it in the bookstop, bookshop in our uh, anthology, Racism Stories on Fee, Hate and Bigotry. Let's give him another round of applause. Um, our, our third performer for today is Shirley Lee. Shirley is a Vietnamese-Australian writer from Western Sydney. She is a creative producer at Sweatshop and holds a BA from Macquarie University. Shirley is currently working on her debut novel with the firm press, and she has been published in The Guardian, Overland, SBS Voices, Mianjin, Griffith Review, and several Sweatshop anthologies, including Sweatshop Women, Racism, The Big Black Thing, and most recently, our newest anthology, Another Australia. And I must, I must take this um, wonderful opportunity to tell you all that Another Australia is actually not supposed to be out until May 31st, but we did manage to organize some advanced copies for this year's Sydney Writers Festival. It's a phenomenal collection edited by Winnie Dunn, and I strongly encourage you all to check it out. Uh, please allow me to introduce you to Shirley Lee. Funny ethnics. Tammy and I waited for the train at Yaguna Station, shivering in the cold under the sign that read, this area is under constant 24-7 surveillance. A Vietnamese lady approached us. Her black foam platform slapped against the tar and you could see her gold tooth when she smiled. Hai cưng đẹp quá, muốn làm massage không? YouTube, so pretty. Would you like to do the massaging? She was a southerner. Her Vietnamese was blunt at the edges, and she sounded like my mum. She pointed in the direction of the Hume Highway towards the Golden Phoenix, an apartment on top of our Rabir Butchery. Its grimy windows were covered in pink curtains, a cardboard sign, and fairy lights. If she had said, Dumbop, it would have literally meant your hands kneading flesh. But no, she had said, Masa. The word slithered like a slimy snake into dirtier territory where hands offer happy endings. I felt my cheeks heating up and my upper lip getting sweaty. I glared at the madam from the Golden Phoenix from head to toe. I wanted to go off at her because she was perpetuating the stereotype that all Viet girls were little Miss Saigons. But she was an oldie from Yu Wei like my mum. She only knew two ways to survive. You exploited others, or others exploited you. It wasn't her fault. Tammy responded to the madam in English with a loud voice. We don't speak slimy syphilis round here. We boarded the train and didn't talk for the whole way. 
I looked outside the window, but due to the surrounding darkness, I was confronted by my own reflection. Maybe we did look like baby prostitutes, me with my hair down in an off-the-shoulder top and wax-coated jeans that bit into the flesh of my hips, Tammy in a tight black dress and thigh-high boots with all her bleached hair gathered into a ponytail that rested high on her skull. We got off at Marrickville Station and walked to the factory theatre. Inside, there was a courtyard with rainbow fairy lights and a bar area where stylish hipsters were drinking low-carb beers. One girl had blue lipstick, a septum piercing, and the word struggle tattooed in delicate cursive font along her collarbone. She was talking to a guy in a tartan shirt whose red beard sprouted like pubes from his chin. Funny Ethnics was on at 7, but we got in there at 7.15. The room was warm and damp with human breath. It smelled like Australia Day in there. Beer, Chico rolls, and Lynx deodorant. Along the rows of red seats, people clutch sweating VBs and take out food. The MC was Tahir, who plays Habib on a TV show called Fat Pizza, and his raspy voice was booming. There were camera crews at either side of the stage, too. As we searched for our seats in row B, I noticed the cameramen shining their lights in our faces, and several people in the crowd had turned to look at me and Tammy. They were laughing at us. Suddenly, Tahir's gobbling voice wobbled across the theatre like a clown on a unicycle. That's the thing about ethnics, they love to be late. You tell them seven, and they read it as 7.30. Tahir pointed his microphone in our direction. He had on his trademark stunned expression where his eyeballs bulged out of his potato head. The rest of the crowd jeered and I scrambled to row B. I started sweating again, like when the Madam of the Golden Phoenix asked if I wanted to give hand jobs for a living. Girls, just relax, okay? I know you're Asian, but this is not border security, Tahir continued as the audience of ethnics and Aussies laughed. I squeezed myself past the knees of the people sitting along the row. A blonde woman with a skeletal face and too much black eyeliner threw her head back and cackled. She sat with a guy who was three fridges wide and had a pack of hot chips and a meat pie on his lap. The seat next to him was mine and the seat beside mine was Tammy's. I sat down and shielded my face from the camera lights. Tammy was laughing along with the rest of the Aussies and the ethnics. She clapped her hands together and her blonde ponytail swung from side to side. Tahir let the laughter die down before he moved on. He introduced the comics like a ringmaster at a circus. The first was a Greek woman whose day job was an IT consultant. One day, she went to a salon and asked for a Brazilian. The staff were so overwhelmed at how hairy she was that they needed several people to pull the wax off her labia. The second was a Fijian Indian guy who had a day job at a video game arcade handing out coins to patrons. That's why they called him the token black guy. The third comic was a Chinese guy who complained to the audience about the lack of diversity in government road safety ads. He wanted to know where were all the Asian women? The last comic was Vietnamese. He had a crush on a hot girl, but didn't have a chance with her because she accused him of eating her dog. After the dog-eating guy finished his set, Tammy leaned over. 
the frangipani scent of her perfume closed in on me, and I could almost taste the wilted petals mixed in with her sweat. He's really cute, she whispered. I observed Dog Eater's face as he left the stage. He had a strong brow line and a sharp nose. I tried looking for his name on the program, but as soon as I flipped to the other side, steaming brown lumps of meat pie dropped all over the paper. I looked up and saw the guy beside me clutching a four and 20 in his ham fist. I was going to spew. His piggy eyes focused on the stage, totally oblivious to the sauce and mince running down his hairy arm. This dickhead used his mouth for two things, shove pies inside and laugh at ethnics. I looked over to Tammy, but she was too fixated on the show. I rolled up my program with the meat inside and placed it on the floor under my seat. Then I stood up and walked out. This time, I didn't care about Tahir making fun of me. I let his voice gargle away like water being flushed down the toilet. When the gig was over, Tammy ordered a martini at the bar. She didn't ask why I walked out half an hour early. She sculled her drink and sprinted to the other side of the courtyard towards a crowd of people who were already gathering at the bottom of the stairs that led to the backstage exit of the theater. She wanted to get to his autograph. Thank you, Shirley Lee. Um, our fourth uh, presenter for today is uh, Mariam Azam. Mariam is a Pakistani-Australian writer and teacher from Western Sydney. She has presented her work at literary festivals across Australia and internationally, and is a longtime member of Sweatshop, whose poems and short stories have appeared in numerous publications. Her debut poetry collection, The Hijab Files, was shortlisted for the Mary Gilmore Award and Anne Elder Award, and it's actually available at the Festival Bookshop. Mariam is currently working on a first novel about a marriage between a Muslim woman and a white convert, which has been assisted by the Australia Council. Please join me in welcoming Mariam to the stage. Fajr inertia. Come to prayer, come to success. Prayer is better than sleep. From the Fajr then, dawn call to prayer. I lie in the knowledge of my failure, the way I lie through my chance at success. Hips sunk into the mattress, blanket over my chin, staring at a yellow flower clock with a missing plastic cover that reads six minutes past seven, 25 minutes too late. The broken gas canister of sleep slowly clears from my head. I hide under the covers from the light invading my room, but I can't hide from the fact I'll have to live today outside of Allah's protection. Miss Khan takes off her hijab. A group of girls in the science corridor blocked the way to my locker as they swarmed around Miss Khan. She had a blonde pixie cut, not what I imagined was under her casual Turkish hijab, which she used to wear tied at the back of her neck. Miss Khan didn't meet my eyes when she said to the group that from her research, 
wearing hijab didn't seem necessary. At the sound of the bell, she stalked into the science staff room and the girls melted back into the throng of students. I crouched at my locker, tears fattening my eyes, hot-faced and ashamed. Fashion Police. I slide onto the back seat of the taxi, dragging my school bag like a sack of bricks. My skirt rides up my leg, but I wear stockings. And when I buckle in, I arrange the pleats to cover my knees and look out the window. The driver's voice slices through my thoughts. He says, my skirt is not appropriate. He glares at me in the rearview mirror and throws up his fingers from the steering wheel. After all, as a Muslim, it's his duty to tell me this. I mumble, okay, like the meek girl I am, and begrudge the $10 note I give him. I go to my room and cry over the fact that wearing a white scarf has me sticking out like a stain. That white is not my color, it washes out my complexion, and that wearing a skirt like the other girls makes me feel a little bit attractive. Cat sight. If you hear the bark of dogs or the braying of donkeys during the night, seek refuge in Allah from Satan, as they see what you do not see. Hadith from Musnan Ahmed. Quincy stops licking his paw, the other front paw poised above the kitchen tiles, blue eyes wide and glowing. I put my glass down on the bench. In this moment, movement feels like a crime. I follow the path of his gaze into space and beyond our red sofa and wonder who or what he sees. Everything is in its place. The sagging silk cushions, the cracks in the tiles, my siblings in school, and all the dark matter I cannot see. Quincy's pink tongue drags on his paw again, and my cheek starts to tingle as if touched by a finger. You can't touch me. The gallery director shakes my friend's hand, but steps back and half bows to me. I smile and think to myself, you can't touch me. The waller bro with the kafaya around his neck takes the seat next to me in my tutorial, but shuffles his chair away. That's right, get out of my personal space. I see a friend hug another in greeting and think of her breasts pressing against his chest, his palm feeling the curve of her side. And to me, a salute, a smile, a nod. You can't touch me. I spend an afternoon learning new hijab styles on YouTube. I practice one that is loose around my chin so that I can wear earrings. The silk of my scarf is sensual on my skin and the drapes fall more precisely than any hairstyle. 
I am as distant and inviolable as the moon. A mere glimpse of my hand pressed against the carpet from under the rippling curtain that divides the university musalla can preoccupy a wallabro's thoughts and stoke his imagination for days. The lebs loitering on the footpaths of Greenacre see me and give me passage like the Red Sea parting in two. Power sizzles along the threads of my scarf. The sleazy new guy at work drops his gaze, but the folds of my scarf armor my chest. Don't even try. Thank you. That was Mariam Azam, and you should definitely check out her poetry collection, The Hijab Files. Our second last performer for this afternoon is Mark Mariano. He is a Filipino writer, editor, speaker, content producer, and social media whiz from Duneside on Darug land. Proudly queer, Mark's work has been featured in The Western, Queer Stories, Truth to Power, Cafe, SBS Voices, United Nations, New South Wales, ABC, and Netflix, ANZ. In 2021, he was shortlisted for the Deakin University Nonfiction Prize. Today, Mark will be reading an excerpt from a short story he developed uh, with us last year for the anthology, Racism, Stories on Fear, Hate, and Bigotry. Please give it up for Mark Mariano. Magic Pansit. The flame, the prayer, and the pansit. Mama checked off her fingers as I blew out 12 birthday candles in front of my siblings at our fancy dinner table. Lord, we are thankful for the food that nourishes us and keeps us strong. Pa, Ray, Lola, Lola, continue to keep us safe. She moved some of the main dishes around knowing our ancestors had their favorites. She placed a single lit candle next to the pancit. I'm usually a fan of the stir-fried noodle dish, but not when it's part of the ritual. This is how we honor them, Mama said, gesturing towards the spiritual offering with one hand and tickling my chin with the other. We celebrate another year of life with food and light, and we do it for them. My school friends are going to think I'm weird, I whined. She planned to keep the punstant out the whole day. The fight was futile, and it was too late. Millie and Bianca were already at the door. I avoided eye contact with the setting the whole night. The aging plate of noodles had been sitting in the kitchen since the morning, and it was starting to smell a little ripe. I prayed the girls didn't notice or say anything. Millie held her Uno cards in one hand and pointed towards the neat corral setting with the other. What's that? She asked. Mama emerged from the kitchen, almost as if she was waiting for this exact moment. This was it. This was the end of the world. 
Uh, I wanted party pies and, and Coke. I wanted a marble chocolate cake, not the sickly sweet purple one Mama picked up from the Filipino bakery down at Duneside Station. My head burned as I rushed to find an explanation, one that didn't force me out as some loony magical freak to my regular friends. Ma! She'd opened her mouth to answer Millie, but shut it after scanning my scrunched face. Mama and I locked eyes, mine raging, hers defeated. I think the pizza's here, Bianca whispered, cutting the tension. Mama fished money out of her mumu pocket, paying the delivery man at the door before carefully placing the food on the recliner next to us. Dig in, guys, she said in her unnaturally Aussie voice tone, the one that she reserved for parent-teacher interviews. <laughs> I didn't care that the offering was good luck. Death creeped me out. Ghosts creeped me out. Celebrations soon ended, and Millie's dad picked the girls up in his red Holden Commodore. Commodore. I dragged my feet into the kitchen as Mama washed the dishes. She faced the window as I glared at her profile. She paused, scrubbing to wipe her forehead. I'm sorry about earlier, Ma. Sudsy water splashed about in our little one-drain sink. When do you feel most love, Anak? Mama said as she squeezed more soap on her tattered dish sponge, honing in on the behemoth of dirty dishes everyone had left behind. My 18th birthday started with a long day of exams. I dragged my feet home. Mama greeted me at the front door, surprising me with a small marble chocolate cake and a single lit candle. I didn't have much energy, but I put on a big smile and hugged her in the doorway until my arms were sore. It had been a hard year on her. My Lola passed away a few months prior, and I caught Mama that morning with puffy red eyes. That night, once the festivities were over and I was sure everyone was asleep, I tiptoed out of my room with an espionage plan to sneak a midnight slice of marble cake. My door didn't creak like it normally did when I opened it. Perhaps luck was on my side. I felt my way through the dark corridor, guided by the mismatched shelves that straddled our duneside walls. My target was only a corner away now. The kitchen was a warm orange, lit by the candle that sat in the center of a full meal. I locked eyes on the flickering flame, my original plan now completely abandoned as a shudder ran all throughout my body. The pancit was cold, but the smell of soy sauce wafted towards me. After what felt like hours of paralyzed silence, I heard my mom's familiar fluffy chinelas scuffing the carpet behind me. Mama hated my nightcaps. I scurried to think of an excuse for, you know, why, why I was up, why was I out of bed? I turned to greet her, but I was met with my shadow flickering on the feature walls instead. The chill in my limbs become flushes of warmth. The hairs on the back of my neck stood up. Oh, fucking getting out of here, I charged into the empty corridor, running back to my room. I slammed my door shut and flung myself into bed, 
shutting my eyes hard until I fell asleep. The next morning, a sea of navy blue swarmed my school gates as I hastily undid my seatbelt. I fumbled with the straps as I grabbed my duffel from my feet. Oh, will I do okay? What if I fail? Will mom kick me out? Will I be disowned? Also, what the fuck was that last night? Just as I got out of the car, Mama handed me a deep blue rectangular container. For good luck, she said. I eyed the lunchbox carefully before I stuffed it into my bag. I glared forward for a moment and Mama stared outside her window. After what felt like a whole week of silence, it hit us both. My eyes widened as I turned to face her. She gasped and her shoulders became tense. I loosened my grip on my bag as Mama let go of her breath, placing her hand on her chest. It was the same warmth from last night and the same heaviness I felt in my chest every time I saw the candlelit offering, but this time it stifled the chaotic thoughts that were boiling over in my head. Scratching the little hairs on my chin, Mama said, they're just making sure you're okay, Anak. Thank you. Mark Mariano, everybody. Um, and our final performer for this event is an original gangster of Western Sydney, Elfresh the Lion. Elfresh is regarded as one of Australia's most important hip-hop artists. He is the author and performer of the Sydney Kings National Basketball League theme song, We the Kings. Ambassador for Australia as selected by YouTube for their International Creators for Change initiative, an ARIA Award and Double J Artist of the Year nominee, and he has shared the stage with hip-hop icons Nas, Dead Prez, Taleb Kweli, as well as Sir Elton John and Malala. He is also the Artistic Director of Campbelltown Arts Centre's Conscious and founder of Village Boy Entertainment, a creative facilitation company that serves as a bridge between artists and the music industry. Following this amazing career, I am also incredibly proud to tell you all that Elfresh's debut work as a published author appears in our newest publication, Another Australia. His piece in Another Australia is an absolute triumph, and I strongly encourage you all to check it out. Please give it up for the final performer for today, Elfresh the Lion. Son of two migrants who hoped that their kid would shine brightest. But where we come from, it's a rough climate. Still, I rose to become one of the Southwest's finest. In this game, they gave us snakes, but we're climbers. Life's all good if you're acing your assignments. But the stars ain't ever in alignment. If there's a way, then we got the will to find it. Move with the times, but my goal to be timeless. Inspired by the grind and the whole scene's vibrance. Community teaches you humility and kindness. When one of us wins, the feeling is priceless. The odds stacked against us. When you open your eyelids, you learn quick. Discrimination's a virus. They try to paint us with one brush and simplify us, but their labels don't define us. 
Survival mindset can sometimes produce a blindness to the struggles of the land we're on, caught up in silence. Remember the times when we left for this island continent, oppression and pain in our consciousness. When we arrived, our skills weren't recognized. From your eyes, your parents' work ethic never dies. You inherit their dreams because they never got the chance. Too busy building things with their bare hands. But that's some pressure. Especially when your vision is extra that takes next level effort. And you're trying to be the best that you can be despite the negativity. You're not prepared for a fight, but they paint you as the enemy. Stealing their jobs when you want equal treatment. Complaining nonstop, that's what they say when we speak up. Be grateful is what they try to teach us. Not knowing that for everything we have, we had to reach up and grab it. Work hard, establish new habits. Some rise to the challenge, some fall trying to manage the expectation. Excuse my hesitation to celebrate a nation that barely appreciate us. That won't face its demons in the name of healing. Who built a foundation off of pillaging and stealing. And will it ever change? They may never understand us. I didn't stutter. We're from the West. Thank you. This is the sound when my heart speaks. I listen to it when I can't sleep. In the silence, a silhouette of greatness moves past me, walking with a bounce to the rhythm of my heartbeat. For every action is a consequence. You take action and feel the consequence. Before action, prepare for consequence. Embed responsibility into consciousness. Power and knowledge for the common man. Develop understanding over common sense for what's common isn't always obvious. Humility over overconfidence. Have faith in preparation and providence. In this age of divisions, rise to prominence. To win, be victorious, aspire to greatness. What a thing to be most glorious in the highest of status. But tell me who wins, the biggest or the baddest. To the victor go the spoils and what's left is in balance. Especially when you think about the state of the planet. What's the price of being great if the cost is to be savage? To ravage, pillage, and damage what to be left. There's got to be more to it than just trying to be the best. These thoughts are confronting. So I bring it back to when at age 21 I wanted to be the greatest rapper. Spent many nights practicing on mics with a vision of seeing my name brighten up in lights. But then I stopped and listened to my heart speak. In the silence, a silhouette of greatness moved past me. There's no point in being the best if the best have nothing to give. So I strive to move with purpose for as long as I live. This is the sound where my heart speaks. Conversations with it when I can't sleep. Remind me of the fire that exists inside. To live for a purpose occupies my mind. Seeing waving colors flying over dissected continents, never fully understanding of our own origins. See to the original, we are the foreigners, collectively foreign to the concept of acknowledgement. Stoke the flames of national pride and gain blind followers, feeling secure, wrapped in an insecure dominance. Honorable visions lost in the lure of the metropolis, then power struggles looking like some standards for commodities. If the present's messed up, the future's ominous. The past is a half-truth enshrined as a monument. Word to Neil deGrasse Tyson and some astronomers, because I sent my hopes up to where Haley's Comet is. <laughs>
back enough, I dig deep like archaeologists. A shame we became well-trained by our colonists. Believing in the sovereign, but living out the opposite. Perceiving our motherlands to be backwards and impoverished. Ain't that some BS? For real. We've become so self-defeatist. Whatever the man says, we buying and believe it, craving for the ops, validation and agreement. The raw truth fits hotter than your face on the cement. So don't trip, you can't unsee once you've seen it. I have what I have due to motherland's bleeding plus a colonized mind trying to understand healing. It's hard to free the mind when you're forced to leave parts of you behind for a taste of that limelight shine. And if you refuse, you are viewed as political and dangerous. That means my presence is a statement. But my parents named me Sukhdeep. It means to be alive for peace. Born with a purpose took a while for me to find my feet. A nervous child in the wild where they eye my defeat. But now they pay attention whenever they hear the lions speak. I don't play no games. This ain't no hide and seek. Aware of my position. Born into a dying breed. Surrounded by fallacy, deception, and apathy. First world ego and civilized savagery. I turn on the news, but there's nothing new to me. Losing brain cells, debating those who speak stupidly. Developed hard skin, so I'm immune to the scrutiny. My survival lessons were infused with turmeric and some cumin seeds. Nothing can break me. Nothing can shake me. My roots are real deep, so the wind can never take me. But it wasn't always like that. It took many years before I realized I had what I needed right here. Here. Listen to my heart speak. I won't let this moment pass me. I close my eyes and I pay fine attention. It's time for greatness, no excuses, no exceptions. Forever rising, I was made for ascension, to carry on through the storm with unparalleled effort, to share my inner truth through this musical expression in the booth on my records with the name I was blessed with. May you forgive the mistakes I made on this album. Over a lifetime, we collect them in the thousands. May my family, friends, and fans keep me grounded. I hope no matter what, that I never let them down. And may the blessings never end. May I catch them when they descend and keep it 100 and never be one to pretend. May there be many more songs for me to bring to life. And it's nothing but love. I wish you all peace and life. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Elfresh the Lion, Jazz Money, Shirley Lee, Guido Mello, Mario Mazam, and Mark Mariano. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.